What is going on, One Week Season fam? JM to win here. It is 5.11 in the a.m. on the West Coast, Saturday morning. Starting next week, that would be week four. Starting next week or the next week, week four or five, I'm going to start getting the pl- uh, the chat pot up at the old time, which was about 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. on the West Coast on Saturdays. But this week, with everything still a little bit crazy, I'm still up at 5 in the morning, and I figured, why not? So this prevents me having to wake up at any particular time and prevents me having to get straight to work. So hopefully get a little bit of time to catch up with the family Saturday afternoon and then building rosters overnight. So... 5 a.m., up all night, but going pretty strong. Might talk a little bit slower. That one and a half speed is obviously your friend. You guys make a lot of comments about that one and a half speed. I don't think of myself as talking that slowly, but apparently I do. Uh, Sometimes I go back and listen to these and there are stretches where I talk really fast, but for the most part, yeah, I think it was working with Levitan for those years. I noticed how good he was at avoiding ums and other filler words. And so I guess in order to get to that point myself, I just started speaking more slowly. So there you have it. Anyhow, we have some good questions this week, as always. And for any of you who are new to the chat pod... We do this every week on Saturdays. The questions come in on Twitter. Use the hashtag OWSChatPod. You can also email us on the email us button on your profile page. We try to keep the questions to evergreen content. So DFS strategy, process-related elements, as opposed to game-specific elements for the upcoming slate which also means that old chat pods, a good 80% of each chat pod is still worth listening to after the fact. So if you're trying to get better at DFS, especially if you're trying to get better at DFS and you're not purchasing marketplace courses, either because you don't like spending extra money or because your bankroll doesn't justify purchasing marketplace courses, one way to get better at DFS is to go back and listen to old chat pods. Pretty cool way because the questions come in from you guys, and so it's the sorts of things you guys are asking about and thinking about, so on and so forth. But enough chit-chat. Let's get down to business. So the first question that I'm going to get to is from Not Awesomeo. Uh, Not Awesomeo reached out this week with a roster of his that would have finished first place for 25 grand had he had Terry McLaurin instead of Hollywood Brown or Kenyon Drake. So Terry McLaurin was part of this group of four guys that he was considering David Johnson, Hollywood Brown, Kenyon Drake, Terry McLaurin. He was going to take two of them. Had he taken Terry McLaurin, 25 grand first place. Instead, he got 32nd place, 400 bucks. Obviously, that's a huge gap. Obviously, that's kind of part of tournament Life. So the first thing that I want to note here, and I, I got back to Not Osmo on this to 
uh, kind of hit on my thoughts, but I also wanted to cover it here in the chat pod and, and then expound on one thing. But uh, this roster of his, again, finished 32nd place and put up 211.18 points. So the first thing I said was, if you're putting up 200 plus points or sniffing 200 points with the roster, you're not doing anything wrong. So obviously, especially immediately after the fact, if you miss out on a big win, the feeling is like, well, if I had just done everything right, then I would have gotten that big first place finish. But kind of one of the traps of that thinking is that that type of thinking assumes that what you just did is not repeatable. Realistically, over time, especially if you, you know, as you start getting more rosters in play, you know, if it's so, uh, I don't know, not awesome if this was a single roster. Uh, I don't think it was because you mentioned something about another roster. But if you're getting 10 rosters in play, 15 rosters in play, 25 rosters in play, you're going to have a decent number of weekends like this where you're really close to the top. And it's like, man, if I just had this one one player different or these two players different, then that's a first place finish. I think Zandemir said this recently in the contributor channel, or maybe it was something he and I were talking about, but he said, he basically said, you know, I understand that if you're not one player away, then you're miles away. If you're not one or two players away, you're miles away. And what he meant by that was you have to be at that point where you're consistently, you know, one or two players off. And that's not going to be on every roster, but that needs to be fairly consistent. And again, that also doesn't always mean that you're going to be in 32nd place out of, I don't know how many entries this was, but if 32nd place was 400 bucks and first place was 25,000, then you're looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of entries here. So you're not always going to be finishing 32nd place and having this situation. You know, you could be finishing in the top 3% or the top 4%, but, you know, if two different players on your roster were different, then you're all of a sudden up in the top 10. That should be the case. And sometimes these things seem really obvious in retrospect when in reality, they're not. And that's obviously part of the process. And the assessment of your process is looking at these things after the fact. But I would say look at them, yeah, on Sunday, but also look at them on Wednesday or Thursday. You know, because right after the fact, when you miss out on a big win, it feels like you must have done something wrong. And sometimes a little bit of space can give you that perspective to help you see really I guess, all the right moves that you did make, and then to also be able to see more clearly whether you made any wrong moves or not. So uh, one thing I did say to him here was that McLaurin was the slightly better play, but I didn't see it heading into the slate either. And I described it to him like this. I said, it's just really hard to think through every angle in the moment. It's like a knot you're trying to untie by kickoff, and on a week of really strong process, you get most of the knot untied, but there are always a few little strings left tied together. And you either get fortunate that everything comes together in your brain and you hit big, and it all feels so obvious after the fact, like, man, DFS is so easy, or you miss on just one or two key spots where it's like, man, how did I not see this one final thing? And the big thing with DFS is that if you're constantly getting down to that point where most of the knot is untied, 
you're constantly going to be in position. Now, we're going to get to a question in a little bit that will kind of talk about how we try so hard to untie those final threads that it can mess up things. But again, for every win that somebody has, for every first place finish that somebody has, they have a number of rosters that were right there and just one or two things didn't go right. Now, the one thing I would say here is, and again, I missed this in the moment as well, um, McLaurin, you know, it's hard because we look at a one-game sample size after week one. And so after the one-game sample size, you know, it's it's difficult to remember how consistent and reliable McLaurin was last year. So when you're looking at a bunch of guys in this price range, Kenyon Drake was the better play than McLaurin on paper in week two, but uh, between Hollywood Brown and McLaurin, McLaurin just has so much consistency. And so in week one, we had seen Hollywood Brown put up, I think it was 100 plus yards on five catches. And it just looks really sexy. And McLaurin comes out of week one with a more disappointing output. And so it's harder to look at the big picture. We have that separator between last season and this season. And also, you get whatever off-season hype on a player like Hollywood talking about how he put on all this extra muscle and he's healthy this year. And so it's scary to not, to not go to him. But what I would prefer to do with a player like Hollywood Brown, and I actually kind of isolated this and mentioned it last week, was I would only want to play him with Lamar Jackson because if Hollywood Brown hits, then Lamar Jackson's definitely hitting. And so on this roster, it had Josh Allen and Josh Allen was about, I think, about 1,500 less than Lamar Jackson and has the same upside. So obviously you're taking on more risk with Josh Allen, but the point of taking on that extra risk is that you can spend quite a bit less and still target the same upside. So basically on this roster, once I'm making the decision to not go with Lamar Jackson, Hollywood Brown wouldn't be on my player pool for this roster. And thinking about the rosters in those terms can be helpful. So it's like, well, here's, uh, so if you're listening to this in week three, the player grid this week is a good example. And actually, if you're, if you're listening to this in a later week, the 2020 week three player grid has some good examples of this type of thinking as far as how you, how you arrange your exposure to an individual game and the players in that game based around what makes the most sense for capturing your upside. And so there's certain spots where it's like, okay, I want my bets on this offense to bleed across a bunch of my rosters. And then there are other spots where it's like, yes, I like this game or I like this passing attack or whatever it might be, but I'm going to isolate this on this smaller group of my rosters because there's a little bit more risk involved. And so a player like Hollywood Brown and even Mark Andrews, I prefer to have them only on those Lamar Jackson rosters. And so that would be a roster where, where I start with Lamar Jackson and then I get to decide if I have Hollywood Brown or not. But on a roster without Lamar Jackson, Hollywood Brown is just kind of crossed off of my list. Another example that actually applies to this week, week three, 2020, is A.J. Green. So A.J. Green, if you're listening to this in the future, you might already know what happened with the rest of A.J. Green's career. But as of right now, we have A.J. Green missed all of last season. 
really made no effort to play last play last season because of contract stuff, but uh, came back this year and has had uh, you know first two games with Joe Burrow, first two games actually under Zach Taylor, and has had monster target share, an A dot of fifteen point nine just this huge downfield role on a team that's wanting to pass the ball a lot. And this week he's playing the Eagles, who have been passing the ball a lot, and we know they want to attack downfield. A.J. Green has caught only 36% of passes thrown him so far, which even if you just regress to the mean, you're looking at 50, 51, 52%, and he's up close to 60% for his career. So I'd like to play some A.J. Green because there's a lot of upside in that play. But there's also a lot of risk here because maybe A.J. Green is just not the same player anymore. Players age, players get worse deeper into their career. And oftentimes, especially with a marquee name, we tend to hold on to the past with that player a little bit longer than we should. I actually used to play season long with a guy who would every year in the draft, he would draft like all the old guys who everyone had stopped drafting, you know, the guys who used to be drafted in the third round, but now they're going in the sixth and seventh. And he would just fill up his team with those guys because he couldn't let go of that, that name value from the past. And just that thought that he might be capturing some sort of hidden gem. This, this guy might have another elite season in him. So we don't want to be that type of DFS player. But we also don't want to just be so black and white in our thinking that we say, oh, A.J. Green sucks now, he's washed up, don't roster him. So the way that I'll take care of a situation like that is on this particular week where I'm going to have Eagles pieces is I'll only play A.J. Green on rosters that bet on the Eagles. And so essentially if I'm saying I want Deshaun Jackson because I think that Deshaun Jackson can have a big game, well, Deshaun Jackson would have a big game through a downfield role through big plays, which accelerates scoring, which accelerates the need for the Bengals to be attacking through the air, throwing to A.J. Green downfield, and increases the chances that he has a a big enough game to account for the risk if he actually does, in fact, hit. So that's how I try to think through a spot like that. That gives you guys a good a, a, a few good things to work off of in terms of just how we're looking at putting together our rosters. And again, these things feel, a lot of times they feel obvious after the fact. So it's important to recognize that they probably weren't as obvious as you're thinking. It's important to allow yourself to come back a few days later with some perspective and look at the situation again. And I could probably keep going on and on, but let's get to the next question. We actually have quite a few questions this week. So we'll see how we do here on getting to all of them. John Patterson. So John Patterson, uh, I'll summarize here because it was a lengthy question, but basically John was saying that he he put 20 rosters into the $3.20 max. And he reserved the rosters early in the week by putting in seven seven of one roster, seven of another, and six of another. So he basically had three rosters in there that covered his 20 rosters, had his seats reserved. He came back deeper into the week and edited each of those roster pools. So that's, you know, here's seven rosters here, seven rosters here, six rosters here, edited each of them into a roster that he liked with a different quarterback in each one, and then changed 
the pieces from there, one or two pieces from there across these rosters. So it was the same basic build, but with a few different angles played on them. So seven rosters that had the same foundation and then mixed and matched different ways, uh, all with the same quarterback. And then another seven rosters, same thing. Another six rosters, the same thing. So a couple of the questions that he had were, one, if this is the best way to approach the these rosters, if it would be better to instead enter reserve 20 bottom-up rosters and then kind of build up each one from there. And then the next thing he mentioned was that he finds himself just trying to make each roster better. Uh, he said, I find it challenging entering 20 lineups because I'm constantly trying to make each one better. So this actually all ties in together because the point, and this is what's this is what's kind of difficult to grasp, but it's so eye-opening once you get it, is that as soon as you move past like three rosters, the point is to not make them better. We want to shift out of that thinking of like, what's the optimal lineup here? Because we have to be willing to take some plays that we wouldn't otherwise take. And that's why this, you know, when I talk about hedging, that's such a great way to exercise this muscle because you end up being able to say, okay, I'm betting heavily on this player because I think this player will do well. And now I'm going to bet on a different player on some other rosters that is specifically the player who will do well if the guy who I think will do well fails. So we tend to think, and this is why we at OWS have an edge on the field, is because we, the field, tends to think the natural way to think is, well, I think this guy is going to do really well, so let me bet on him doing really well. But the more profitable approach is to recognize, okay, what if this guy doesn't do well? And what does that mean for other spots on my roster? So uh, I think that fundamentally, John, there's a lot of things that you're doing here that make sense and that you're doing well. But I wouldn't want to go into a block of 20 rosters with preconceived notions about exactly how I'm going to build. I wouldn't want to go in and say, okay, I'm going to have seven with one quarterback, seven with another, and six with another, because every week should ultimately be different. We want to be Belichick-like in our approach to DFS. We don't want to go in and say, well, we run 11 personnel and we run a 3-4 and that's how we win football games. Instead, we want to look at each individual slate of games and say, what's it going to take to win this slate of games? So I don't even necessarily go into the weekend knowing for sure that I'm going to be multi-entering. I'm always looking for an opportunity to feel really confident in one or two or three teams. Obviously, I've gotten more used to how to build super plus EV play with this roster block approach, but If I find, and in fact this week, I kind of thought that I might end up on just a handful of teams. Instead, I'm going to be really heavily on a few spots and then mix and match some other things from there. And then other weeks, I might kind of spread things out across three or four spots. So every week's going to be a little bit different. And so that's the first thing. I would just reserve the 20 rosters 
And in fact, this is what I've done in the past to reserve rosters. I will purposely put in plays that I'm not going to make. Backup players or guys in awful spots or guys I never play. That way I have no temptation when I come back to that roster to say, oh, well, maybe maybe I'll just leave this. Or, or to have that fear of, oh, well, I've had this roster sitting in here. What if I change it and this was the winning roster? So I put in players who I have no temptation to play that roster, and that way I can go in and actually start from scratch. And then approach the slate and let the slate, you know, let, let Lex's research approach be your guide. The way I've talked about how Lex allows the research to guide his mind through the game instead of deciding what he's going to research. Uh, as somebody who's done as much <clears throat> NFL research as I've done, I can sense that he's going in there because it's you find a certain stat and that leads to another stat and another stat and another stat, and there's a natural flow to it. And really, that's the way our rosters should be. There should be a natural flow to it where we're just kind of led through how these rosters are coming together. And so I would approach things that way and then also let go of that thinking of trying to make things better. We sit there and tinker and try to find a more optimal play. And what ends up happening is if you get in that mindset of trying to make the roster better, you have a hard time sticking on the Aaron Jones play, for example, from week two, because you're like, well, this isn't the optimal play. This guy's, you know, I can only bank on him for about 18 touches and he's, you know, only plays 55% of the snaps and his floor is lower than I should be getting at this price tag. And, um, you know, there's a fine line between challenging your roster or as, as Todd has called it, trying to break the roster. Like for me, when I used to do just one or two or three rosters, once I got down to that one or two or three rosters, my goal was then to try all sorts of different approaches of how to maybe get a little bit more upside in an, in a different spot, you know, on the roster without making the roster kind of fall apart. And maybe one out of every three weeks, one out of, one out of every four weeks, I was able to find something that did end up adding two, three, five additional points to the roster. Uh, I guess you guys are hearing the, the the messaging dings. That would be Aaron also up at also up at five thirty in the morning, um, just grinding, grinding for for OWS. Um, but yeah, you you have to be able to get to that point where you're going to challenge your roster and say, yeah, I feel really good about this roster. Now let me throw some things at it and see if I can find any major holes in it. Or let me see if I can find something that makes me say, you know what, I'm going to build another roster. And then that way, you know, for something like a 20 roster build, I might, so let's say I throw in 26 rosters. I might have one or two spots sometimes three spots on a weekend where there's a roster I really like and I'm not quite sure on the last couple couple plays. And so I'll play that roster out there two or three times with just these minor changes. So two or three of my 26 rosters might look very similar to one another with you know just a couple changes. But 
I allow that to happen naturally instead of coming in and saying, okay, I'm going to have seven rosters that are this way and seven that are this way and six that are this way. And so that's the main thing that I would say in terms of how to approach that a little bit differently. Jesse Friedland asked, can you explain the art of determining how how many lineups you want to dedicate to players slash game scenarios, etc.? It'd be great to hear you talk through this past weekend as an example. Also, what's up with always doing 26 lineups? I'm a numbers person, and as logical as I am, I get a bit superstitious about numbers. So some favorite numbers of mine... 9, 8, 9, 13, 14, 19, 26. So typically if I'm going to roll out multiple lineups, it's going to be somewhere in that range. 29 is another number that I like. Uh, There aren't a lot of numbers in the 30s that I like. In fact, fact, thinking about it, once we get past 29, things get pretty thin until like 64. 64. I guess I like 62 okay. I like 44. But um, but yeah, those lower numbers, uh, I have some pretty clear ones that I like quite a bit just randomly. And so that's mostly where the 26 comes from is like, I don't want to win 200 grand on a weekend when I have 25 rosters <laughs> in play because I don't like the number 25. So yeah, that has nothing to do with anything. It's just a sort of a personal thing that uh, I feel a little bit better about my play if I have a a number of rosters that I like. As for the real question, the exposures, it all comes down to, on a weekend by, I mean, it all comes down to feel. It's not scientific, but it comes down on a weekend by weekend basis around what I feel most confident in, what I feel is likeliest to happen. And so last week, for example, I guess sometimes it's a, it's a bit scientific. Last week, week two. Week two, I had 13 T.Y. Hilton rosters and 13 Paris Campbell rosters across 26 rosters. As I mentioned, I had like four rosters with both of them on there together. Maybe it was five rosters with both of them on there together. So that was... Uh, you know, mistakenly thinking that the Colts were going to throw the ball at minimum 35 to 38 times. They ended up throwing the ball 25 times. So that obviously ultimately hurt those rosters. On top of that, Paris Campbell busted his knee on his first touch of the game. On top of that, T.Y. Hilton dropped a long touchdown pass. So a lot of things fell apart in that spot. But when I was looking at the way that that offense was expected to be run. I was expecting about 20, no, not 20, about 18 targets to those two guys, 17 to 18 to 19 targets to those two guys. That put them at about 13 catches. And given their average depth of target, that would put them at about 160 yards. They were playing Minnesota. Minnesota was not going to create much trouble for them in catching passes, But Minnesota does still do a good job preventing yards after the catch. Minnesota still has strong safety play. So I didn't want to go too far above the average depth of target for these guys. But if I assumed that, you know, we play this slate out over and over again, and these guys get 18 targets as sort of their 
their mean, you know, across these hundred games, hypothetical hundred games, then again, I'm looking at about 13 catches for about 160 yards. I'm looking at a 50th percentile projection for the two of these guys combined at 29 points. That's before accounting for touchdowns. Uh, in that specific spot, I checked that against what EV Analytics had in their projections. Obviously, I'm not a big projections guy myself, but on something like that where I was relying so heavily on specific numbers, I wanted to back that up. We have the tools to do that. And I looked and EV Analytics had those two, you know, if we combined their 50th percentile projections, had those two at like 27.9 points. So right in line with what I was seeing myself. Also, Paris Campbell kind of has had a new role, which a projection system is going to be slower to adjust to. So the projection system would be taking into account touchdowns, which I was not taking into account in mine. But then I can also kind of adjust upward from there, knowing that a projection system is going to be a little slower to adapt to changing roles. Uh, a side note here, you can add together two players' 50th percentile projections from the same team. You cannot add together two players' 75th percentile projections from the same team. So, for example, I couldn't take Paris Campbell's 75th percentile projection and T.Y. Hilton's 75th percentile projection and add them together and call that a combined 75th percentile projection. Why? Because Paris Campbell could hit his 75th percentile game at the cost of T.Y. Hilton. So the Colts could have a 50th percentile game, but Paris Campbell could hit his 75th percentile, and because of that, T.Y. Hilton could end up in his, say, 25th percentile. Point being, just a side note, you can't just add those higher percentiles together to say, okay, well, you know, a quarter of the time, these two are going to combine for this score. But 50th percentile projections, uh, you can treat it just like projection and say, okay, in the standard game for the Colts, this is about what we're going to see. So I had these two guys at 29 points before accounting for touchdowns. The This was backed up by EV Analytics. This was also backed up by the fact that Devontae Adams had a similar average depth of target to Paris Campbell and T.Y. Hilton the week before against Minnesota on 17 targets, caught 14 for, I think it was, 156 yards. So again, everything right in line with what I was projecting for these two Colts guys combined. Add in touchdowns, and now all of a sudden we're looking at probably about 34 to 35 as the projection for these two. But when we put them together, their salary was only about 10K. So that was a situation where it was like, okay, half the time here, I'm expecting these two to combine for, you know, three and a half X their combined salary. So if you're listening to this in week three, in the player grid this week, I kind of dived into in the Cowboys spot, how I then look at things from there. It's like, well, okay, they're not necessarily both going to hit right in the middle, but if one of them goes for 10 points, then that probably means the other one is going for 25 points. Also, the Colts could have a really good game and these two could combine for, you know, Devontae Adams had put up 45 the week before on his 17 targets in this matchup. These two could easily combine for 45 points. Uh, if we want to get up into 90th percentile for this team, these two could have combined for 52, 53, 55 points. So with them costing only 10K, 
I knew I wanted to make sure that I got them on some rosters together. Now, I'm looking at them combining for a tournament winning score as a lower you know, percentage bet. That's not something that I want to put on half of my rosters because that's not something that's going to happen 50% of the time. But, uh, you know, getting them together on four out of 26 rosters, about 15% of rosters, I can feel pretty comfortable that 15% of the time in that setup, in that matchup, 15% of the time, Paris Campbell and T.Y. Hilton could combine for 45 points, 48 points, 50 points or more. So getting them together on a few of my rosters was something I wanted to do. I felt good once I saw them on 46 or four, four out of 26 because that is something that I feel could happen 15% of the time. But then I'm also expecting that about half the time, one or the other of them is going to have a really strong game. And so because there's not a ton of downside risk, you know, I'm still expecting that 50th percentile has them both performing pretty well. And if one of them performs poorly, I'm expecting that to mean that the other one is doing really well. And so again, we start comparing this to what else was available on the slate from like a floor and ceiling standpoint. And I felt really good about taking this kind of two-player block. And so it wasn't that I necessarily felt so confident in Paris Campbell or so confident in T.Y. Hilton, but I felt very confident that these two combined, however those points ended up being distributed, these two combined were going to have a strong game. And both of them had a shot at having a strong game together, a pretty clear shot. And if one of them missed, I felt pretty good that the other one was going to be hitting. And so I bet on, rather than betting on T.Y. Hilton, I bet on that Colts passing attack, that, that concentrated distribution together. And again, it didn't work out. Paris Campbell got hurt right away. Mo Ali Cox ended up getting a bunch of downfield looks that probably would have gone to Paris Campbell. T.Y. Hilton dropped that touchdown pass. But, you know, you get a 10th percentile game every once in a while and you just say, well, that's part of what happens. You know, um, you can look back. I can look back at that one and feel very comfortable about the process that went into it. Um, and that made the difference between, you know, a strong weekend and a huge weekend. But I'm going to be OK with that because uh, that's a place where I can look and say that that's, it's backed up by the process. And the only thing missing was the results on the small sample size of, of one weekend. So that's how those guys ended up on so many rosters. And then again, in week two, the Cowboys, you know, we talked about how I'll shorten up the rest of this, but we talked about how last week that that Cowboys Falcons game, you know, I'm, I'm typically very comfortable fading the highest total game on the slate. If, if, there are factors that line up that make me comfortable fading it. I say that to say I'm not the kind of person that just automatically goes out of my way to target that highest total game. And in fact, I often look for ways to not target it. I look for ways to get some differentiation if I can find any angles to play there. Week two, that was, as I said at the time, like a, a two or three times a season type of game. And that was the sort of game I was not going to miss out on. And again, what I wanted to bet on was the game environment. So if you're listening to this down the road, that game ended up with a final score of 40 to 39. Just so many things pointed to that game being a great spot for both passing attacks. The Cowboys, as I mentioned, were a more concentrated attack than the Falcons by one player. Or I should say that was the expectation um, the expectation was not that Dalton Schultz would, would step in and have the biggest tight end game that the Cowboys had had 
in ages, but uh, we expected them to be uh, more condensed than the Falcons by one player, and the price tags on the Cowboys were also lower across the board than the price tags on the Falcons. So my starting point in that game was going to be the Cowboys. I was going to bring Falcons pieces back on Cowboys rosters as opposed to starting with Falcons and then bringing Cowboys pieces back. I was going to take this group of Cowboys players and feel very confident that, you know, again, same type of setup we just talked about with the two Colts players, that feel very confident that across this group of players, of this concentrated group of players, that I was going to get a lot of points cumulatively. And then I was going to make sure that I had multiples of these guys on, you know, some rosters, two on a roster, two on a roster, three on a roster, two on a roster. And then in other places, you know, one on a roster, one on a roster, one on a roster, and so on. So once you start thinking about that in a in a game like that, where it's like, this is going to be one of my favorite games on the year, and these guys are underpriced, and the distribution of touches is concentrated, well, clearly I'm going to go overboard on ownership there. So then that kind of dictates itself, and I ended up with, you know, 13 Amari rosters and 13 Gallup rosters and eight CD Lamb rosters. And that was because I felt best about Amari. And then Gallup provided the most leverage at the low ownership in the downfield role. And then obviously CD Lamb was still a really strong play as well. So I wanted to make sure I got plenty of him. Um, then I ended up with, you know, four, five, six Zeke rosters to hedge off of all the pass game exposure that I had. I had 10 out of 26 DAC rosters because. That's 40%. That's kind of where I was at. Was I wanted to bet that heavily on that particular game. And then the last spot that week that I had really heavy exposure was Miles Sanders. I had him on 14 out of 26. And it was a week where there just wasn't a ton that I felt really great about at running back. But Jonathan Taylor was super chalk. Miles Sanders was priced right next to him. I liked Jonathan Taylor as a play, but I felt confident that if we played out this slate 100 times... Miles Sanders was going to outscore Jonathan Taylor, you know, 58 times, 59 times. And sure, Jonathan Taylor would outscore Sanders 42 times, 41 times, whatever. But uh, rather than going with the mega chalk, I just decided to go completely all in on Miles Sanders. And it's one of those spots where, again, coming from the background of being a single entry player, a lot of comfort in saying, okay, well, if I'm wrong on Miles Sanders, I'm wrong on Miles Sanders, but this is a place where I want to place my bet because if I'm right, not only can he put up a huge score, and again, he ended up five yards shy of the 100-yard bonus. He ended up with only three catches, but on seven targets. So a lot of things could have gone even better for him. And if he'd ended up, instead of outscoring Jonathan Taylor by like half a point or one point, whatever it was, if he'd outscored Jonathan Taylor by eight points, 10 points, and Jonathan Taylor's, whatever he was, 30, 35, 40% owned, and Miles Sanders' is 5, 6, 7% owned. I just gained so much ground on the field. So, for, so to be able to take what I felt was the slightly better play at like 20%, 15% of the ownership, it became sort of a no-brainer to me to also, you know, and then not loving a lot else at running back, to just load up heavily on that spot. So that's kind of my thinking. Those are just the overweight pieces from that week. And then, you know, from there, it's like, how do I mix in my, you know, then you'll have for me, my pieces where it's like, okay, I'm going to build around this game. 
but I don't love it enough to want to spread it, spread this out across other rosters. So it's like, okay, here's three rosters where I'm going to build around the, the Eagles passing attack. And if I'm wrong on the Eagles passing attack, fine. It's not going to hurt my other 23 rosters. But these three rosters are going to be put in position to explode to the top of the leaderboards if the Eagles passing attack goes off. And then I'll bring in pieces that I really like. So it's going to be like Eagles passing attack plus one of the Colts wide receivers plus one or two Cowboys pieces. That's how I would play a spot like that. Um, And yeah, so then you kind of get a sense. The rosters start building themselves and then you have you know, in the player grid, the bonus pieces, and I'll, I'll find places to put those in to kind of fill out those rosters based on, you know, where I need upside, where I need some safety, how much risk I'm already taking on or how little risk I'm taking on in different rosters, how chalky a roster is, how outlandishly off the board a roster is. You can kind of start filling in those bonus pieces, pieces from there. So, um, yeah, that's that actually I think gets pretty deep into how I put all that together and gives you a good sense of what my thinking is there. Uh, next question. This is a great one from uh, old friend Ian Dolson. Ian said, I was thinking about allocating a small amount of my play to satellites for tickets to higher dollar contests like the Wildcat. There are a few contests that have under 100 entries, 11, 23, 79... My question is, how do I build for these super small contests? Would it typically take less of a score to win these tournaments? Looking at the entrance lists, there are some big name players in these. I'm mainly a single entry player, around 5k or fewer entries. Obviously, I would approach these differently than large field MME, but what other factors should I be considering? So first off, I love this question. And I love this question for two reasons. One because it's a really sharp question to get down into those layers, to not just say, I'm putting in a team in this tournament, but to say, how do I specifically build for this type of tournament? But then also, I love this question because I really like the idea of of getting into these satellites for tournaments. Uh, I used to do that quite a bit. I think it's really valuable if you're not going to be able to buy into the Wildcat, or I used to do it for the 1K tournament, but you can get in there for a little bit less money than it would otherwise cost. I think that that's really sharp. Um, The next thing that I was going to say before I got to this point in the question was one thing to be aware of is there are a lot of big name players who feel pretty confident that it's plus EV over time for them to hammer these satellites. So in other words, they'll say, and I, and I don't, I can't, you know, I haven't been in these satellites in a while, so I can't tell you off the top of my head, which, which are the players who are in there. But, um, but yeah, essentially it's like, well, I can win this. Let's say, let's say it were a wildcat satellite and it had 333 entries and it were a dollar to enter. So the Wildcat is a $333 contest. So all things being equal, you'd have to play this satellite 333 times to win one ticket. But if they say, I'm better than the field to such an extent that I can probably pick up a ticket once every 250 times, once every 270 times, once every 290 times, whatever the case is, I'm now saving money by doing things this way. So 
they play these satellites. So how do you win these satellites? The first thing you have to think about is that this is a first place or nothing tournament. And then the second thing you need to think about is the field that you're playing against. So that's one of the reasons why I I did so much bankroll building early on in the 1K tournament was, you know, it would be 100 entries, 200 entries, 300 entries, and it's a 1K buy-in. So, you know, there's a limited number of people who are playing that tournament. And so week in and week out, it was largely the same people. And you start to get a sense of what the rosters in there look like and what the people in there, how the people in there are thinking, how they're approaching things. And you start to see the angles on just how to beat that particular field each week. So what I would say is start out in some cheaper satellites because these guys are going to be putting the same sat- the same rosters into all the satellites. Or at least I would imagine that they would be. So enter some cheaper satellites and then look at how these guys are building. And yes, there are going to be other people in these satellites as well. But these are the guys that you actually have to beat. Because these are the guys, if, if these are big name players that you've been seeing at the tops of the leaderboards for years, and you're seeing them in these satellites, that means that they've been playing these satellites for years. Which means that they have found these satellites, they've been tracking their play, and they've found these satellites to be plus EV for themselves for years. So whoever else is in these contests, that's not really who you're trying to beat because this is a long-term play. This is you trying to say, I'm going to be plus EV in these contests as well. And so the people you need to beat are the people who are already plus EV in there. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to hit at a higher rate than they're hitting at, but it means that you can't be having your good weekends on the same weekends they're having their good weekends. You can't be overlapping in the way you're approaching things. So if you look and you find that they are stacking high total games and that's how they're approaching these satellites, then you look for the second highest total game or you look at, you know, you look for angles, opportunities where maybe the highest total game has some leverage options to where if the if the plays that those guys are going to be on fail, you're going to succeed as a result. Or Maybe they're playing with a very optimal approach, just taking the best plays. And so you can, you know, where they're targeting like that 170, 180 point score with a higher floor. And maybe you can say, okay, I'm going to target, I'm going to take on a lower floor, but I'm going to think the same way I do in large field play. I'm going to target that 200 point score and know that I can soar past what they're doing if I get the right weekend, if, if things come together in the right spot. So that would be my big thought there is to think about the competition, think about what type of contest this is, it's first place or nothing, and then think about how you can maneuver to that first place spot from there. So don't just leave it up to chance, but think, think very specifically about this contest and first place or nothing, and then think, okay, how do I put myself in the best position for first place in this particular contest? All right, next question. Carry out Cole said, tight ends against a team with a high run DVOA. I wouldn't think that there's any correlation there. Tight ends are typically covered by linebackers and or safeties. 
and there are plenty of linebackers who are really good in coverage and bad against the run or vice versa. Uh, there are plenty of safeties who are really good in coverage or bad against the run, vice versa. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that there's any necessarily any correlation there. Uh, swag gator 28 said thoughts on what to do in a week where you simply don't have time to go through your normal research slash process. I have a lot going on all this week, especially Saturday night, Sunday morning, simply just play less or trust your early week research. It depends. I actually, so on weeks like this, I tend to have really good weeks, weeks like the one you're talking about. Because what I do is I gear my week toward the fact that I'm going to have less time. And so what that does is it forces me to look for extra opportunities during the week to think through my roster. So I guess that's not really something I run into as much these days because I don't have any extra available time left in the week. But when I was more like just a DFS player and had one article a week, if I was going to have a week that was busy for one reason or another... I was then going to find like those in-between times to make sure I was constantly thinking about the games, thinking about the rosters. And I would typically find that I was even better prepared by the weekend than the weekends when I thought I had more time. So uh, big picture, that's how I would look at things. And then, yeah, if if you're getting closer to the weekend and you're like, you know what, I don't have a great feel for this weekend, it's very liberating to say, all right, I'm going to cut my play in half this week and then stick to that because what's going to happen is then you've cut your play in half it's liberating you feel more freedom to take some risks uh to be a little bit more aggressive and then you start feeling confident and you're like well maybe i will go with my full buy-in don't do that because then it shifts your thought processes again but just you know take that opportunity to to say all right here i'll take this as practice for like trying some things that could get me to first place cut my budget in half and see what happens Question from LF24. How much do you heavily factor having players in the afternoon games? Uh, I've had a few lineups I've liked the past two weeks, but they were all at 1 p.m. Eastern kickoffs and got scared off thinking I'm a sitting duck once the 4 p.m. games start. Am I overthinking or is there merit to the thought? When it's all said and done, all that matters is the points. So if you put up 236 in the early games probably nobody's catching you in the late games. Now, I get that you put up 236 and everybody can see that and really sharp players can adjust their rosters to try to get a little bit of extra upside. Really sharp players who say, okay, well, it's first place or nothing. And so this roster that's already pretty solid isn't going to get first place without me being a little bit more risky. So I'll pivot um, you know, you might open yourself up to a very, very tiny percentage of the field that is giving itself an extra little push to try to beat you. Obviously, that also means that they're taking less optimal plays than they previously had, which might mean that they're hurting themselves and actually preventing themselves from beating you. So I would imagine that it all sort of washes out. And yeah, I, I've never, it's never something that I've overthought myself. If I have players who I like, it really doesn't matter to me what time their games start. I think it's a very interesting question, but it's certainly in the bucket of I would I would prefer to not overthink it than to overthink it. Next question. Uh, I think this is, I think both these questions are from S. Weed, S. S. Wedekind 4. Um, I'm sure I did not say that correctly, but 
so first question with rushing touchdown upside, how plus EV would it be to roster both Kyler Murray and Kenyon Drake in a plus matchup in which Arizona should be able to control? I feel you may be, be able to capture a lot of the production between the two. Thanks. I, I would prefer it in cash games over tournaments because in tournaments, so if we're talking about this particular week, week three, where Kyler Murray, or at least if we're talking DraftKings, where I'm more familiar with where they're priced, but Kyler Murray is 6,800. So you need about 28 points. And then Kenyon Drake is 6K, so you need about 24 points. So 52 points combined, and that's not impossible, but it's a little bit harder for the quarterback and running back to get together because if Kyler's getting his 28 points, he's soaking up a lot of the touchdowns and if you know that that are now not going to Kenyon Drake because you still you know you're looking at four touchdowns in a game if a team does really really well if you get five touchdowns you're you're feeling lucky about that and so um you kind of need for a tournament for these two to be on the same tournament winning roster you need a Kyler to Drake passing touchdown which obviously can happen but that would be the angle that you would be playing there as opposed to trying to capture as many of the touchdowns as you can and uh, again, not that it couldn't hit, not that Kyler couldn't go for 30 and Drake for 30 on the same weekend, but the chances are getting a little bit slimmer. So it's not something I would go out of my way to roster. I think if I had a roster, even in large field play that I really liked that had both of them, I would keep it, but I would then say, okay, what what story am I telling with this roster? Like the story you're telling at that point is either A, that you know Kyler's throwing to Drake or B, that this team is scoring a lot of points, and then at that point you want to make sure that you're saying, okay, so how does that happen, right? Then you need some Lions pieces brought back on the other side because you're expecting a lot of points in this game. Next question was about this idea of taking a rushing quarterback from one team and two wide receivers on another team, and instead of pairing those two wide receivers with, say, their pocket passer, you pair them with the rushing quarterback. But the question brings up the fact that you now need to get two things right instead of getting one thing right. So should this strategy be used in all contest types or just certain GPPs with over a specific amount of entries? Technically, the the type where you would say the pocket passer with both of his wide receivers would actually make a little bit more sense for larger GPP pools. Because in that case, what you're ultimately hoping for is that this quarterback does put up a 35-point game. And that's why you have two wide receivers is because then this quarterback can put up 35 points and he can support one wide receiver at 32 points and the other at 25 points. In order for both wide receivers to be on the tournament winning roster, the quarterback does need a really good game. But obviously, there are a lot of additional factors that go into it. What type of slate is it? What else are you doing with your roster? But the place where I typically find myself taking that running quarterback instead of pairing my you know, wide receivers quarterbacks with him with them is in the spot where I have the roster and then I'm looking at some other quarterback in the same either cheaper quarterback who opens up something else for me. So like in week two where Kyler Murray was underpriced at 6,100 or it's a situation where I'm looking around the price range of the quarterback who I do have. And it's like, man, 
I just have a really hard time seeing this quarterback outscoring this running quarterback over here. And that might even be Matt Ryan, who you're like, yeah, I think Matt Ryan's going to put up 26, 27 points here. But that doesn't mean that Matt Ryan's going to be on the tournament winning roster, right? Like, or other people could have Matt Ryan, Julio Ridley, and Matt Ryan puts up 28, and Julio and Ridley both put up 30. But there's a few people who are smart enough to say, oh, but instead of just sticking with Matt Ryan, I'm going to get this running quarterback who, sure, Matt Ryan can put up 28, but this guy can put up 32, 33. So you need some extra things to go right, and you need some extra things to go, that extra thing to go really right. Because if you're taking two wide receivers, you are saying that that the, the quarterback on that team is having a, a big game. So you need this running quarterback to have a bigger game for it to make sense. So I think that this question also came up right now because uh, Sonic talked about it in his article in week two. And uh, I think that I also brought it up in week two. But it's not something that we're necessarily always going out of our way to look for. So much as there are all of these rules that have been laid out for DFS play, that all that the rules are saying is this is what's the most plus EV in like all situations over time. But individual situations can be different. Or there are certain setups that are a little bit different, or there are certain times to go against the grain a little bit. And so many people never never break these rules because they think that these are hard and fast rules, and they're so logical about DFS that it's like, oh, well, this is the rule. This is what, what the numbers say. And they don't realize that those numbers are macro numbers that don't necessarily apply to every single situation. And so for me, I just make sure that I'm never tied into this idea that I have to have um, things correlated or tied together in a particular way. And I'm always looking for opportunities to gain that little bit of extra upside. So uh, for something like that, yeah, you do need an extra thing to go right. But there are certain situations where you kind of start looking at it and you realize, no, I actually feel like like it's likelier that this running quarterback actually gives me gives me even more total points, even though I like this passing attack and I'm betting on the wide receivers. Or, you know, you've got two wide receivers who are under 5k and you think they can combine for 40 points or 42 points like in week two where I had Paris Campbell and T.Y. Hilton I didn't have any Philip Rivers and I had a lot of those two together well they only cost 10k combined and we were expecting narrow distribution of touches and so it would have been very easy for those two to combine for 45 or 50 points and Philip Rivers to not be on the tournament winning roster and so in a situation like that I actually think I would be needing more things to go right for that Philip Rivers roster to be the tournament winner. Because I kind of walked through earlier in this pod all the ways that I could feel really comfortable that there was a high probability of things going well for Hilton and Campbell. But that didn't that didn't mean that this offense was going off to such an extent that Philip Rivers was also going to be the optimal quarterback. And so in that situation, to me, it was very plus EV to just take whatever higher upside quarterbacks were around Philip Rivers while still betting on those wide receivers. So it's just always looking for the opportunity and, and any contest size, I would feel comfortable doing it if I feel like I'm getting you know a higher floor ceiling combo by going to a different quarterback. All right, 
We've got five questions left. They're all really good, so I want to get to all five of them. But I don't want to spend uh, another 30 minutes of your time going through all of them. As you've noticed, I've tried to tighten up these pods a little bit. We've gotten angles from like an hour 35 down to like an hour 25. We've gotten the chat pod from uh, an hour 45 down to maybe like an hour 20. So we're going to try to keep hitting those marks. Let's see how we do. So the first of these last five questions is from John Longo. How would you attack playing the Wildcat with a single bullet? I won a ticket from an MLB satellite, and this ticket alone equates to about a weekend's total buy-ins. It's a really interesting question, and there's a right answer, but then there isn't really a right answer. The right answer is you're in this contest to try to get first place. So go ahead and say this is like, yeah, you won the satellite, but this is free money. If you lose, you're losing nothing. And play as if that's the case. Play as if you're trying to get first place. Now, to be clear, so this weekend, I'm playing to try to get first place in the Wildcat. I'm going to be heavy on my favorite spots in order to try to get to first place. So my favorite spots are loading up on this Cowboys game, this Cowboys offense. My favorite spots are Miles Sanders and Kenyon Drake and the Chargers running backs and Ezekiel Elliott and a couple other running backs that are mentioned. And uh, my favorite spots are T.Y. Hilton and Cam and Dak, right? Like these are all really sharp plays. So I think that's important to recognize. You can overthink a spot like this and think that you have to go so far off the board or do something so totally different go stack the bingles or something like that. You can play this the way that you would typically play. You know, play it, it's a different sport, but play it the same way you tried to win that satellite in MLB. Play it to try to win with sharp plays. But there's this tendency to just try to cash in a tournament like this because if if cashing is even if it's like the wildcat has gotten so top heavy that I think that cashing is maybe like 500 bucks now on a 333 ticket which is which is pretty disappointing way for them to set it up but at the same time even if cashing is only 500 it can it can feel like well this 333 ticket is is 0 dollars it's nothing and if I just cash I turn this into real money minimum cash yeah, I'm only making, uh, like if I were buying in with 333 bucks, I'm only increasing that 333 by 50% by barely cashing. I might as well go play cash games. I might as well go play double ups instead of doing that. But if it's a satellite ticket, then it can feel like, okay, if I cash, I'm getting 500 bucks. That's real money. So... That's obviously not the recommended way to play. With that said, that's viable. You know, if you're like, you know what, I want to build, like, I don't want to try too hard for first place. I don't want to take Darius Slayton because I feel like he could dud my roster. That's fine if you recognize that that's what you're doing. But ultimately, 
the real the real goal should be saying I'm gonna try to get first place, and you can do it. You know, Hilo tries to get first place every week, but he still cashes. You know, almost every week, and so you can do it with that approach. You can do it by saying, okay, like yeah, maybe if I were playing twenty rosters in the Wildcat, I might have some exposure to the Chargers running backs. I might have some exposure to Darius Slayton. And sure, maybe those are the guys who will end up winning the tournament. But here are some other guys who could also win the tournament that I feel better about, that I feel safer about myself, whether that's Miles Sanders and the Cowboys passing attack, or whether it's Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins or whatever the case is. And, you know, you can embrace those plays and still go for first place. So I would say some blend of the two, but ultimately shoot for first place because two years from now, like maybe, you know, two weeks from now, if you don't get that 500 bucks for the minimum cash, you'll think, oh man, I wish I would have done this one thing differently. But two years from now, you're not going to be looking back and saying, oh man, that 500 bucks that I could have gotten by minimum cashing in the Wildcat. But let's say that you try to get first place and you take it down. Well, you know, then two years from now, you're still looking back and remembering that weekend where you had a single bullet and took down 200 grand or 300 grand in the Wildcat. So yeah, protect yourself if you need to, as far as, you know, don't, don't, you don't have to go too risky, but definitely still try for first place and, you know, be aggressive in your hunt for upside. Target 200 plus points because that's what it's going to take to win the tournament. And, it's a top-heavy tournament, so you know if you're not aiming for first place, there's not really a point to being in it. Now, next question was from Nihal, who mentioned that in the NFL Edge, I talked about being on Demir Bird in Week One when he had zero targets, and then in Week Two he had ten targets. Uh, he said, "I find this happening to me a lot." I actually called into the Run to Daylight podcast in week one to ask about Jordan Reed. And he put up two catches for 20 yards, and then he went nuclear in week two. Is being on a player early a good indication of good process? Or does it fall into FPS, fantasy play syndrome, and not accounting more for the actual matchup? Second, by having the player dud when I'm first on them, it puts me in a situation mentally where I don't want to roster them again. I know this is bias, but the latter would be uh, to continue trying to roster that player and falling into some cost fallacy. How do you balance the two? There has to be there has to be some sort of process to turning the page from one week to the next, because for me, and obviously there's a, like each week is pretty dense for me. So right now it's Saturday. Tuesday feels like it was three weeks ago, right? So like last Sunday feels like it was a month ago. It really does feel like a one-week season to me. It's like a like last Sunday feels like a really long time ago. So for me, there's there's no carryover of what I who I rostered last week and how that might affect who I roster this week. But you really actually do have to get to that point. You have to be able to assess the player based on all of the factors that are going into that player's spot. So like Demir Bird is one thing or or Jordan Reed is one thing because these were guys that in week one, you're saying, all right, you know what I'm going to take? 
a, a swinging risk on this guy, and I know that it could be a complete swing and miss. And then you swing and miss, and that's fine, because you knew that that's the type of play it was. And then the next week, the player does well. You know, Reed, Kittle was out, and Reed saw his snaps go up, or Bird, the Patriots, threw the ball way more than they did in week one. And you just kind of, I, I think you take it, and you file it away as additional information gained, and find ways to apply that in the future. But that's what it should all, all be about. You know, each weekend being its own isolated season that doesn't really affect the next season. Now, that's easier said than done, but two things that help with that are, one, having a process on Monday or Sunday night that actually turns the page to the next week. Monday's a little bit better because you're not emotional from Sunday and whatever happened. Uh, but then two, builds off of that, is learn to get rid of the emotion on Sunday. Learn, learn to be significantly less emotional about the ups and downs of your roster. It takes a lot of time. For me, it took like five years. Uh, for others, it, it would take less time. For some, it might take longer. But for most, it wouldn't take much longer because uh, that was always an issue for me with poker as well. I've mentioned that before. Was, you know, just kind of getting broken focus off of one thing throwing me off. And um, I would internalize that emotion. I wouldn't show it outwardly, but it would affect my play. DFS, same thing. And so it's a process. It takes time. Uh, I think for a lot of you, it would take less time than it took me. But to a point where the ups and downs on a given day, on a, on a given slate, don't move the needle that much because you're big picture focused enough and process focused enough on what you're doing that uh, that's not really the lens through which you're looking at things. So that can help as well, obviously, because um, then you don't have that emotional side going into the next week of whatever grudge or love you have for a player. But yeah, I would call all of those just things that you kind of work on over time and get better and better at as time goes on. And then, yeah, I would say that generally speaking, when you're on a player or the same thing that I talked about last week with Jonathan Taylor, and I said, I brought up the examples of all the times where I've just been adamantly against a player that was bad chalk and the chalk hit and those are obnoxious weeks. And then over like the next 10 games for that player, it gets proven out over and over and over again, just how right you were that one week. And so one of the examples I used was Corey Davis at 25% ownership against Stefan Gilmore before people realized just how not good Corey Davis was before people realized just how good Stefan Gilmore was. And I spent the whole week trying to convince people that it was bad chalk. Don't play this. Corey Davis went out and put up like a career game and was 25% owned, um, might've been higher owned than that. And then, you know, after that, it's what has Corey Davis done since then? And what has Stefan Gilmore done since then? And you just have to recognize that those things are going to happen. They're also going to happen in reverse where you're on a player, the player completely fails. And then the next week and maybe the next week and the next week, that player keeps doing really well. And yeah, you just have to recognize like, okay, I was seeing things well and there's variance here. So not everything is going to work out the way you want it to on a given weekend. But as long as you can continually point to say, okay, I'm, I'm seeing things well, I'm seeing the right things. 
then that has to be good enough. That points to good process and will lead to good results over time. So three more questions. Two of them come from the OWS team. So I'll get to Roto Maven's question first. Aaron, he asked a roster construction question. Um, I could see myself ending up with something like three Tannehill rosters. This is a quote from the NFL Edge. Three Tannehill rosters on the 26 roster block, one with Janu, one with Davis, one with Tanny naked. I might then bring one of those back with Dalvin, one of those back with Thielen, and one of those back with both. And then I might hedge with a couple Henry rosters, betting that if Tanny disappoints, it will be because Henry is having a big day. Outside of these isolated bets, I probably wouldn't be rostering players from this game, but this would get me exposure on my roster block in case the points in this game concentrate on the cornerstone pieces of these offenses. Roto Maven asked, my question, how do you decide on the Minnesota end who goes with Janu, who goes with Davis, versus who goes with Tannehill? Then on the Henry rosters, do you build three Henry rosters with one Thielen, one Dalvin, one both? Uh, and in this instance, there really isn't a right answer. You could get really fine and say, well, Janu gets shorter area targets. So if Thielen and Dalvin both hit, that could mean fewer short area looks for Janu. And so the Thielen-Dalvin roster should go with the Corey Davis roster. But I honestly, like, that makes sense on paper, but then you go watch an NFL game and things are way more chaotic than that. And production happens from, you know, most of the time the guys who the quarterback is looking for and who plays are being designed for. And then every once in a while, you know, from just a play breaking down and the right thing happening at the right time. And so because of how chaotic a real life NFL game is and production from a real life NFL game is, I try to not get too fine with those types of things. I think the closest I would get here would be saying that if I'm going to have Dalvin and Thielen both on a team, I probably want them both on a team where I also have Tannehill and a pass catcher, Tannehill and Jono, Tannehill and Corey Davis, because that's increasing the chances of everything working together well in this spot. In other words, if the Vikings do well enough that both Thielen and Cook hit at their elevated prices, then this game's probably getting pretty high scoring, which means one of the pass catchers from Tennessee is probably putting up a really nice game. Uh, so that's about as far as I would go there. Uh, first off, with the Henry, I would hedge probably with two Henry rosters off of my three Tannehill because I'm not, it's not like I'm saying I think that Henry has an equal shot at hitting compared to Tannehill. Uh, it's more that, okay, if I'm going to have some Tannehill exposure, I might want to offset that a little bit with some Henry exposure. And then as far as whether or not I would bring that back with Minnesota pieces, it kind of depends on what else I'm seeing on the slate. Like, do I really want... So we'll take this particular slate, this particular weekend, with how much I like the Cowboys pieces. Do I really want to have five rosters that are taking up, taking up with high-priced Vikings pieces? Like, what if Thielen misses... I mean, if Thielen hits at his price tag, how high does he have to hit for me to feel like, man, I really missed out. I really should have had him. Same thing with Dalvin Cook. So I, I see these guys more as part of a game environment bet 
which would be those three Tannehill rosters. And then I see the I would see the Henry rosters as hedges off that game environment bet and not necessarily a place where I'm also wanting to add on more Vikings pieces. Because then all of a sudden I'm up to five or six rosters with Vikings. I'm up to 20% of my rosters are betting on these high-priced Vikings players doing well when these high-priced Vikings players were never guys I was targeting in the first place. They were guys who were you know, being brought back as pieces on these Tannehill rosters. So the Tannehill roster is basically a way to say, all right, this is a high total game. I can see how it could be high scoring. And Derrick Henry's really expensive and has a low floor, so I don't necessarily want to go to him. The Vikings haven't looked great. They're not throwing the ball a lot, so I don't want to start my rosters there. But if I want to try to get the upside on this game, I could see taking Tannehill. Tannehill, even with the lower passing volume, has been really consistent. He's only had one disappointing game since he took over as the starter. He's had a lot of games that would keep you on a really solid pace. So I'll start there. Okay, if I have some Tannehill, let me also make sure I mix mix and match him with his receivers a little bit. Uh, If I'm going to do that, let me also make some bets on the Vikings offense to say, okay, if this game does go off, I'll try to capture the upside all at once. And then in case this upside doesn't hit, Derrick Henry's my hedge to say, well, this game will still probably have points. So no Tannehill probably means Henry. And so I'll go that way. It doesn't mean that you couldn't put Vikings on that roster. It could certainly work. But the way that the reason why I would be using these players would preclude me from putting Vikings on that Henry roster because um, Vikings are kind of the bring back bet anyway, and not not guys that I necessarily am looking to get on 20% of my rosters this week. Next question comes from Lex Moralia. And not a surprising question for Lex to ask, what's the best way to combat information overload? Maybe it's as simple as narrowing focus, but I enjoy consuming football content so much, Twitter, podcasts, articles, that my brain is usually a jumbled mess by Sunday. So obviously this is heightened by the fact that Lex does research for the slate and has to look at a lot of different things. I think that the important thing for anybody is having a very clear process that starts turning your mind toward narrowing down your pool as the week moves along. So for me, by the time I'm hitting Friday, everything is geared toward narrowing down that player pool because I need it ready for the Angles podcast and the player grid. And so it forces me down to the player pool size that I need to be at by that point. If you are consuming information deep into the week, that's not a bad thing. But if you're consuming information deep into the week to continue expanding your potential player pool, then you're in trouble. Like once you get deeper into the week, you should you should have very like acute points of information that you're looking out for, that you're paying attention to, because it should be like, okay, I know that I'm down to this player pool now. I know that I'm down to this smaller, tighter, sharper group of players. And sure, here's this guy that I found on Tuesday that I kind of liked, but when I started comparing him to the other pieces, he just doesn't stack up. Maybe he'll have a big game, but 
he's not in my player pool this week. I've already cut him out. Okay, here's another guy over here who was still kind of pushing against my player pool on Wednesday, Thursday. But as I started digging deeper, I started finding some reasons to feel a lot more concerned about him than I thought early on. So I've cut him out of the player pool. So now I'm not like news that comes in on these guys. That's not where my focus is. It's not what I'm paying attention to. And then really by Friday night or Saturday, I guess Saturday night, by Saturday night, the information intake should be finished. By that point, it should be moving fully over to that creative side, whether you are, you know, last week at like 11 p.m. midnight, Zandemir was in his hot tub. Uh, Sonic was at home meditating. I was sitting in the dark in front of the fireplace. Like all three of us were kind of separately doing the same thing of like relaxing our mind and letting our thoughts wander through different games and through different scenarios and through kind of that final group of players that we were considering to see how we wanted to, where we wanted to attack most heavily, how we wanted to put our pieces together. And by Saturday, that really is where you should be. So that information overload, it can be valuable. I mean, it's, you know, same thing with Cubs fans, like taking in information throughout the week, just to have a sense of everything that's going on and to, and to have something that you can, information that you can aggregate. But then there has to be the point where you start aggregating that information and turning it into rosters, turning it into, you know, creative pieces being put together for that weekend where you've moved past the FOMO state, you've moved past the players that you're like, oh, but I like this player, I like this player, I like this player. And you've gotten down to the point where it's like, okay, this is what I'm rolling with this weekend. If I'm wrong, I'll, you know, I can assess all of this on Monday, but I feel really good about how I've gotten to this point, how I've narrowed things down to this point in the funnel. And let me kind of focus on these things. So there, yeah, I think that it's like the farther into the week you move, the more you start cutting out that extra information until by the end, you're just focused on those, you know, last couple pieces of information that you trust the most and then narrowing down your player pool from there. Then the last question is from Amin Ahmed, and it is two non-football questions and a football question. So I'm going to lead with the football question, which is, uh, is there a different strategy building a lineup for a single-entry GPP versus multi-entry GPP? Uh, only making one to two lineups for multi-entry. Yes. So multi-entry, if you have people who are putting in 150 rosters, then you have people who are hitting on some higher risk, high upside plays. If you're in a tournament where people are putting in 150 rosters, you're also probably in a tournament with a really steep payout structure. In other words, lots of money to first place, probably a decent amount to second, third, but once you fall out of those top three, four, five spots, the payouts start dropping dramatically. In other words, you really want to aim for first place or nothing. And then you're competing for first place against people who are able to kind of take some upside shots on really low owned players that other people just aren't going to have. So the type of player that somebody's putting in their 65th build is going to be different from the type of player you're putting in your first or second build. So it's hard when you're competing in these like true mass multi-entry tournaments 
with a single bullet. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but what I would do with a single bullet is focus very heavily on game environments. Make sure that you're focusing on situations where if one or two things go right, four or five players on your roster can all fire up the leaderboards at once. So whether that's a shootout environment or some sort of situation that's heavily correlated, that's the way to play with a single bullet or one or two bullets in mass multi-entry type of tournaments. If you're just trying to build an optimal lineup, okay, here's the best running back. Here's the best price considered running back. And here's the best overall running back. And here's the best quarterback. And here's one of his pass catchers. And here's the sharp, cheap, tight end of the week. You know, you start putting things together that way, the same way that everybody's kind of looking to put together their sharp, optimal build. You're really, it's almost impossible to take down first place in a tournament where other people have 150 lineups because you're needing to essentially get eight or nine things right. And it's just really difficult to do that. And if you don't do it, other people are catching big upside by building around game environments and um, by correlating their rosters well and by having 150 rosters to work with. So you can take down first place with a single bullet. It's been done plenty of times. It's been done in, in large field tournaments where others have 150 lineups plenty of times. But the way to do it is to you know try to find as much upside as you can in isolated spots. So for example, this week for me, it would be like you take, maybe you try to play things a little bit differently. I mentioned this in the player grid. You, you focus on the Cowboys passing attack, but instead of taking Dak with two wide receivers, maybe you take Russ with two wide receivers. That gets you some differentiation, gives you an extra little edge trying to get to first place where maybe Dak uh, you know, puts up a big game, supports his receivers, but maybe Russ puts up an extra three, four, five points and you end up with an extra little edge. But again, betting on like a game environment and um, trying to capture as much upside as you can in that way. Uh, next question was, during the offseason, you stated that you write fiction. Do you write books or you work for a, for a publisher, etc.? cetera? Uh, yes. So my first novel was published when I was 26. And now I am 35, so that was a long time ago. Um, And yeah, I've been writing fiction since I was 14 or since I was 15, ever since I realized I was not going to play in the NFL. And at the age of like, you know, 22 to 25 to 26, I was basically like living off of cereal and student loans and had roommates and rent was two fifty a month and uh, just focusing all my time on writing. After that novel was published, uh, I got married shortly afterward and had already started freelance writing at that point. And so fiction kind of took a back seat for several years until I launched OWS when I've you know been able to use six months of the off season each year, really more like four or five months of the off season each year to focus on that. So yeah, that's that story there. The uh, last question was, the uh, have you received good feedback from members purchasing the Amazon third-party seller course? I've been interested in going that route due to family circumstances. I have to work from home. So the Amazon third-party seller course, uh, yeah, I mean, we've had good feedback on it. 
a couple things to note is, I mean, I mentioned this, but it's, it's work. There are certainly things that you have to do there and it's an incredible path for supplemental income. It's almost guaranteed to be profitable if you go about it the right way. So it's not guaranteed to be something that you're going to be making 100, 150 grand a year on within a year and a half to two years. It's something that has very clear paths to that as Jake lays out for you and they're paths that Jake has followed himself. Um, But regardless, if you put in the work and actually start doing it, you're going to make money off of it. I mean, that's the way it's set up. And then how much money you make off of it kind of depends on, um, you know, how many things come together just right. Uh, with all of that said, uh, I actually talked to Jake recently. Um, I mean, there's two layers here. I talked to him at the airport. I ran into him and he and his wife were headed to Tahoe for two weeks. And then we're going to Vegas after that. So, uh, Jake, Jake is still operating with good money and flexibility. Uh, but I was talking to him about Amazon and asking him how COVID had affected things. And he did say that things had dipped down this year because of COVID, because a lot of the products that he had were affected by uh, COVID and all of the changes and so on and so forth. So um, I think this is a tougher year to get something like that off the ground. And I think that the question, I mean, I think the course is 190, which is, again, not a, not a negligible amount, but a small amount for a course like that. Typically, you'll find those courses for 600, 800, 1,000. Um, so I will say that if you feel pretty confident that this country will be in a better place by next March, next April, um, that you know, let's say a vaccine is out and then some of the political turmoil has died down, some of the uh, social turmoil has died down, a civil war has not started by then. Uh, If you think that'll be the case, then next March, April would be a great time to have a product getting off the ground. And for that, you would want to start in like the next month or two. So, Um, I think that there are a lot of factors in it. It's certainly not something that I'm like, you know, yes, go buy it. It's for everybody. And I, I try to make that very clear, but I think that if you're, if you're going to put in the work on it and you feel pretty good about, you know, the, the risk of 190 bucks against the potential that, you know, next March or April is a good time to launch a product, then, you know, is basically if the risk of 190 bucks is small enough that you're like, yeah, this is worth it to find out, then I would I would say fire off a shot at it because um, a lot of people who maybe would be thinking about doing something like Amazon third party seller have probably put that on a back burner because of the way 2020's been and the way 2020's affected them, and um, you know, it's like how people don't buy the stock market, when it dips, they buy it when it goes up. Like if something like Amazon third-party seller has gone down right now, that actually makes it a good time to get in because most people are not getting in at this time. And so, um, yeah, I could see like next August, September being a time where the, that market is sort of crowded again, but February, March, April, assuming that things are kind of back to closer to normal by then, 
um, being a time where there's actually a little bit less competition. So um, those are my thoughts there. Hopefully that helps a little bit. And for any of you who stuck around through all of that, thanks so much for hanging out. As always, blast to do this. And uh, with that, I'm going to get to bed. All I have left is... All I have left is roster construction at this point. So uh, I'm going to go to bed, get some rest, hang out with the family a little bit in the evening, and then spend the night having fun building rosters before hanging out with you guys at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday. That'll do it for me now. I will see you there.